You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, we are, as I mentioned, continuing on through our sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you've been at Mercy's Door for a long time, you'll know that this is the second gospel that we are walking through. Uh, A few years ago, we walked through the Gospel of Mark, and that took us about a year and a half, okay? The Gospel of John is several chapters longer than the Gospel of Mark. Your only hope is that this is my last time preaching in the Gospel of John, and that Adam will be able to make his way through the terrain at a quicker pace. But nonetheless, as we look at some of these larger books, and, and again, if you're new here, this is, this is typical for us. We walk from left to right through Scripture, uh, because quite honestly, any ideas that I have in my head of a fancy sermon series that will meet the needs of the church will pale utterly in comparison to the God of the universe who has already told us what we need to hear. But as we do that, as we kind of look into these big books, one of the things that we try and do is, is ask the question, Hey, how do, we, how do we break this down in a way that gives us a little bit of a map of where we're going? Right, the Gospel of John in its 20 plus chapters covers a lot of ground. And there's a lot of different points of emphasis within the book. And so as we mapped out where we were going with John, we broke it down into four different parts. And you, you saw that on the bumper video that we played. We began in a, a, what should have been a short sermon series in the first chapter of John called In the Beginning. And that really, the, the introduction, the preface, the beginning to the Gospel of John, in some ways is, is the most important and impactful first words of a, a story or book that you will ever read. John sets the foundation for us that the one of whose life we are about to read is not just a man, but he is the man. He is God as the man in human flesh. He he sets the tone for the entire story that is about to come. And then we moved our way into kind of our, our second portion of the Gospel of John in what we're calling the signs of a Savior. And John takes takes great pain to show various signs that Jesus gives both to the world in which he lived, as well as all of those who would read of this gospel, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, that he's the Savior, that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited King. And we've read already several of those signs. We watched in the first sign as Jesus turned water into wine, declaring not just that he had miraculous power, but that he was the true master of the feast, the one who would turn water in this world into wine, who would turn what is common in this world into joy for all eternity. We moved on from that and we watched Jesus in the temple declaring his authority even over the most sacred of religious places and objects in all of the Jewish world. Jesus declaring that this was his father's house and that he was the true temple that though it might be tore down would be raised up again 
within three days. And then we moved on from there and we watched Jesus in various interactions with men and women do what he does a lot, which is heal the sick and the needy. Bring comfort to those who are in the midst of despair. And today, in John chapter 5, we come upon another of Jesus' miraculous healings. But it's not just another story. This story, one, for one man, is the story of his entire life. And for us, there is so much for us to again see of Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing. The story starts in verse 1, and it presents us with a common problem. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus was in Galilee in our last reading in the the northern part of Israel, and we read that there's some sort of feast of the Jews. We're we're not sure which one, but Jesus, like so many other Jewish men and, and, and possibly women, made his way down to Jerusalem toward the temple for the celebration of one of these major feasts. Now we read that as Jesus is there in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Jesus makes his way to, to what would have been probably the northeast section of Jerusalem. And we're told that he makes his way to a, a pool or, or a set of pools that's called Bethesda. In Aramaic that word Bethesda literally means house of mercy. And as we're about to find in the next sentence, that name is incredibly fitting, or at least it is about to be fitting. John tells us in these, among these roofed colonnades, these porches surrounding these pools, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That word invalid literally just it means weak. It encompasses a, a, a vast amount of, of sicknesses or illnesses or injuries or maladies. Now listen, it's easy when we read through Scripture and we see Jesus to, to think, well, well, here's a picture of a man amongst other men and women. But Jesus is not just man He is man who is also fully God. He's God in human flesh and not just amongst other men, but He is amongst His creation. Think about this. Colossians says that Jesus is the one by whom all things were created, and He is also the one for whom all things were created. And now here's Jesus in the midst of his creation, and we are told that his creation is a multitude of invalids, literally a plethora, a fullness of those who are broken, weak, marred, sick, and dying. These scenes in our mind as we see them, because it doesn't just happen here, Right? This is a common picture of Jesus. 
Think of, again, Jesus, how arresting this moment is. The Creator amongst His dying, broken creation. Think of Jesus outside of the tomb of Lazarus. Think of Jesus face to face with the isolated leper. Think of Jesus approaching the man who is indwelled by a legion of demons. Or think of Jesus at the foot of the bed of a lifeless little girl. Now contrast that scene to the poetic refrain of Genesis 1. Where the word of God is spoken. Where Jesus, the word of God, creates. And again and again we hear, he spoke and it was good he created and it was good he saw and the creation was good that word is a hebrew word taub which means pleasing or excellent delightful to see this was how humanity and all of creation was created but when christ enters into the world it's not pleasing. It's not pleasant. It's not good. It's broken and marred like this multitude of those who are sick and lame, blind and paralyzed. And listen, lest you think that, that this scene is a scene of ancient times and not today, Maybe you and I don't walk around and see a large gathering outdoors of those that are sick and lame and broken and marred. That's not because creation isn't sick and lame, broken and marred. It's just because we've decided as a culture we're going to hide all that's broken and marred. We cover up what is broken. We, we put our social media posts that make it looked like everything's okay and our relationships aren't failing and our health isn't haywire and our own insides and passions and pursuits are not off kilter and away from the Lord. We are just like this scene in here, a humanity crying out for healing. And Jesus steps into the midst of it. And I want you to hear that Jesus doesn't just stumble his way there. We read that one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus does what Jesus does. He steps into the midst of brokenness knowing that he is going to heal. But I want you to also see that in this passage, as Jesus prepares to heal, he also pushes in in two ways that we typically seek out healing apart from him. And he shows us just how inadequate those ways are while showing us how adequate and sufficient he and he alone is. So let's look at the first of those two ways that we, just like this man, tend to seek out healing, and it's the way of the world. 
If you notice in your Bible, if you have a copy of Scripture in the ESV, which is what we typically use, if you look, you'll notice that there's no verse 4. Go ahead and look, just make sure I'm not like pulling a magic trick out here. All right? Now, it's not that the writers of the ESV either can't count past three or just made an editing error. The reason that there is no verse 4 is that there used to be a verse that was included in previous iterations of the Scriptures, but as we found new and older original fragments, we noticed that this was not within the original text. The King James, for instance, originally included a fourth verse that read this, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled or stirred the water. And whoever then was first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now it's likely that what happened is that somewhere along the line, someone was reading over Scripture or dictating or copying down Scripture and notice that there's no explanation given why all of these men and women are gathered around this pool. And there's no explanation given for why when Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And so it's likely that that someone made a note somewhere on a copy of Scripture of something that he had once heard about this pool, this place of Bethesda, and then Accidentally, it it made its way into further copies of Scripture. Now, let me pause, lest this give you an unsettling feeling of Scripture. This is actually really good news. It's good news that we continue to find more and more original fragments of Holy Scripture. It means that it really was written during and directly after the times of Jesus when the men and women that walked with him, saw him, witnessed his crucifixion and his resurrection were alive. And it also means that you're not getting the wool pulled over your eyes by this. In the few times that we found that in the original text, one note or, or verse or phrase wasn't included, it gets taken out. So, just so you know, if you ever come from a church that is a King James kind of only type of church, and you hear they're just taking out verses they don't like, no, we're taking out verses that may not have been there in the original text. So, here's why I say this. This is important for a reason, and one of those reasons is other ancient texts that we have point to this very place as not just a place where Jewish men and women gathered for healing. But pagan men and women, Romans even, would gather. For whatever reason, the water, whether it was fed by a spring or had some sort of mineral qualities, would regularly be troubled or stirred or bubble up. And various stories and superstitions had been built up that if we could only get into this pool, then men and women would be healed. Jesus comes and speaks to a man that for 38 years has believed that this pool is going to heal him. And guess what? It hasn't. 
it clearly has not worked. This man and various other men and women have believed that this is the place of their hope. And it's failed them. Jesus comes and he seeks out this man who has essentially made this pool a second home. And he asks the man what at first seems like a rather odd and uncaring question. He says, do you want to be healed? Circle that phrase if you write in your Bible. If you don't write in your Bible, circle that phrase. Hear those words from Jesus. Because it's the same question that he asks us. But when Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? He's not challenging the strength of the man's desire to be healed. He's challenging the strength of the object that he has placed his hope in. Jesus is saying to him, if you really want to be healed, why are you here? If you really want to be healed, why have you placed your hope in this? The man replies in what I think is such a great synopsis of humanity. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't say yes. Instead, he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. The man replies to Jesus that though the spring, the pool has never healed him, it certainly can't be because the pool doesn't heal. It has to be that others around him have failed him. Or this is what we do. It can't be that the places we routinely turn to in this world just can't fulfill what we desire or aren't enough it has to be our circumstances or it has to be the people around us we just need to try it again in a little bit of a different way let me bring this down to a real practical level anybody ever been on a diet anybody ever been on one diet nope one diet one time i highly doubt it if you have come and talk to me Right? No, of course not. We've been on multiple diets if you've been on diets. And even if you've been on just one type of diet, you've probably had to try it five different times. Don't like that analogy? Anybody had a resolution? Anybody ever only had one resolution? And that resolution so fixed everything that you realize you didn't need any more resolutions. I'll make it more practical. Anybody ever had an iPhone? Anybody ever only had one iPhone? No, you haven't. Those are always the really convicting ones to me. Because I just, you know, maybe just got the iPhone 13. And then before that, had I didn't have the 12, but I did have the 11. And then the 10, yeah, I get sad after that. And this is what we do. It certainly can't be that the things we place our hope in just aren't worthy of our hope. It's that we need the newer version of it. It must be the circumstances around us. We just need to try it differently, but they all eventually fail because they all lack the power to heal, to cure, or to fix. The world that is broken, hear this, 
The world that is broken cannot heal the world that is broken. Now, this is not a sermon, and I am not a person who is going to disparage the amazing healing gifts that the Lord has given to humanity as common grace. Right? We celebrate doctors and nurses, medications, supplements, therapy, and other approaches that reduce suffering, that help develop order and peace, and that help to bring certain levels of comfort. But you'll notice what I didn't say. These things don't really heal. They don't really fix or cure. Not truly, not fully. Nothing in humanity can bring us back to Taub. Can bring humanity and creation back to good, pleasing, delightful. Humanity can't really fix your health. The death rate is still one for every one. That's actually not true because of Jesus, but take him out, and it's one for one. I don't want to calculate that percentage. It would go a long way. Humanity can't fix your health. You will die. This is the uplifting part of the message, right? It can't fix your relationships because no matter what you do, your relationships will still be inhabited by multiple sinful people with sinful tendencies. And it can't fix the longing in your soul for joy or comfort, rest or significance. Jesus, though, can. Jesus constantly pits himself against the attempts of the world to heal and satisfy and bring hope. And he routinely shows that where the world fails, he will not. But before we look at exactly what Jesus does, there's one other way portrayed in this passage of how we look for healing that Jesus shows us also fails. And that is the way of religion. Now let me define the word for a moment. Religion encompasses practices or observances of a particular people as prescribed by their God. So for us as Christ followers, religious observances would include what we're doing right now. Gathering together for Sunday worship. Studying the Bible. Spending time in prayer. Now if you look up the word religion in the New Testament, it is almost, almost exclusively used in a negative context. And when it is used positively, it's because the authors are telling us that Jesus has radically redefined the word. Jesus and his healing of this man, who is likely paralyzed, is not just contrasted against the ways of the world, but also the religious practices of the Pharisees. Watch what happens when the man is healed, starting in verse 9. We read, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me 
That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they answered him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You see what happens? Immediately when this man is miraculously healed, miraculously healed, he's assaulted by religious officials who question what he's doing. Now John takes great pain to tell us the Pharisees know that he has been miraculously healed. And if they missed it, he tells them that he has been miraculously healed. But they don't care that he's been miraculously healed. These men who are charged with upholding the worship of God are not here now to celebrate the work of God, but instead to condemn him for carrying a mat. The man, we're told, is healed on the Sabbath. And, as is prescribed in Scripture, Jewish men and women were prohibited from doing certain types of work on the Sabbath. It was a day that was meant to give to humanity rest and reflection and bring them into a time of communion with the Lord. Scripture doesn't mention anything about carrying a mat as being prohibited on the Sabbath. Instead, that was added later by religious officials who cared more for the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. This controversy and others like it was one of the primary rifts between Jesus and the religious rulers. But how does the healing of Jesus come in conflict with this way of religion other than the day of the week that it was on? Well, see, the the Pharisees were a tradition of Jewish men that was birthed out of the time where Israel was in exile. And the Pharisees believed that the only way that they could return to having possession of the promised land, that the, the reason that the Messiah had not yet come was that the Jewish people were simply not holy enough in order to get God's blessing and favor. And so they set about creating a group of people who were diligent in observing commands and statutes and observances in order to persuade God to give them what they desired. But we know the story of the Jewish people and we know our story. They weren't holy enough, and neither are we. They weren't holy enough to persuade God that they were worthy of His favor. They weren't holy enough to to persuade God to heal them because of what they had done. Now listen, this may sound like something that was an ancient problem, right? But it's something that plagues us as well. It's something that plagues me. I'll, I'll share a story from this week. It's always, it's never fun when you're prepping a sermon and your analogies for uh, like sin and unbelief came from that week. You want to be like, you know, in my younger days, I always love when people are like, if you would have known me before Jesus, you wouldn't have liked me very much. I always am like, I'm not sure I like you now. 
You know, like I think that's what people say of me. So I won't use that phrase. This week, here's what happened. Uh, Rachel and I, as we're getting ready to move to Texas, our house is now sold. We're living in it by the grace of the people that bought it. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and we're getting ready to move to Texas, and we don't yet have a house that we are ready to close on. And there, there is a house, we're under contract, but there were all sorts of issues in the way. And so Rachel and I were praying this week and just asking the Lord to move and work miraculously and give us this house. Uh, at the same time, I'm reading a missionary biography about George Mueller. If you don't know George Mueller, I don't have enough time to tell you about him. But suffice it to say, he opened up uh, orphanages that cared for thousands and thousands and thousands of orphans in England hundreds of years ago. And he did it without asking any human person for a single cent. Instead, he just prayed and the Lord just miraculously like dropped money and food and buildings and land into his hands all the time. Right? But George Mueller, when he would pray, he would get down on his knees and pray. And so I'm reading through this at night, and I'm anxious because it feels like everything with the housing situation is falling through, and so I'm like, get down on my knees. I'm like, this is going to work now. <laughs> Lord, please give us the house. And he didn't. <laughs> I, I, I feel silly saying that, but I wasn't depending on the grace and mercy of Jesus. In my prayer time, I wasn't seeking to be closer to the Lord through my religious observances. I was trying to cajole Him into giving me what I wanted. And when the Pharisees challenged Jesus, He responds by saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus declares Himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the one the Pharisees wanted. And they can't see it. They're so tied up in the process they believe is going to finally get the favor of God that when the Lord instead gives graciously, mercifully, and undeservedly, they can't see it. Jesus is not opposed to the Sabbath. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. But Jesus sees that humanity has hijacked the observances and commands of God and twisted them. The Sabbath, like prayer and scripture or pursuing holiness, is not a way to earn God's favor and convince him to give us his presence. Sabbath and prayer and scripture and observances are gifts from God that show us His favor and allow us to enjoy His presence. Like we've said this before. If you come into this place without encountering your Heavenly Father, then me and all the other pastors have utterly failed. If you come here just to do the things that Christians do, then you have missed the point of this gathering. Religion does not heal. It points us to the God who does. Jesus says the world can't heal. 
your religious observances cannot heal, but I can. Jesus says this fantastic small sentence to this man who has been for 38 years likely paralyzed. He says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Jesus' healing is not complicated. It's not big. It's not loud. It's not restrictive or demanding. It's simple and quiet and spoken to a man who, quite honestly, if you read the rest of the text, doesn't really even seem to understand what he is being given. Jesus just simply says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. It's oftentimes been said that those who are loud and abrasive and shout about their power do so because they don't want you to know that they're not very powerful. That those that are truly strong tend to be quiet and reserved because they know that they are powerful and need not make a show of it. Listen, Jesus is a roaring lion. He is a tornado of fire and smoke, but Isaiah also tells us that he is a gentle shepherd that tends his flock. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He holds them in his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. But Jesus' healing isn't just tender, it's also complete. You know, it, it, the question that comes into my mind in passages like this is, so do we all get to expect this? Right? Like, do, do we all just, if we just, if we wait on you long enough, Jesus, will you give us this healing, this physical healing here and now? If, if we just wait on you long enough, if we just sit in your presence, if we just plead with you in prayer, will you finally give us the, the healing of this world now in this life? And the truth of the matter is, the answer to that is, no, not necessarily. Will following Jesus mean that we don't suffer, that we don't struggle? And the answer is no, and Jesus himself alludes to that and why that's okay. Look down to the next interaction with Jesus and this man in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Notice that word, well. It's not the same word that Jesus used before, healed. Well is degrees. Healed is definite. And Jesus says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This may seem like Jesus switches gears and go, okay, tender shepherd guy is gone. Now we're back to the religious guy. But this is not a switch in direction for Jesus. It's a continuation of a conversation that's already started. See, Jesus' physical healings are always a picture of the greater healing that he promises to bring, not to one, but to all. 
And when Jesus tells this man, sin no more, he isn't just telling him, hey, don't do bad things. Don't break the rules. Jesus is inviting this man into a life lived devoted to God, dependent on the grace and mercy and the goodness of God. The the Greek word here for sin is hamartia. It means having no part in. This is is what the, the Greek concordance says about this word. This is the brand of sin that emphasizes that the action is self-originated, self-empowered in nature, i.e., it doesn't come and is not empowered by God. Paul tells us in Romans 14, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Anything that's not from the Lord, done in dependence of the Lord, and for the glory of the Lord is sin. And conversely, whatever is done in faith, in dependence on the Lord, is not sin, but brings glory to God and proceeds from our life in Christ. So what am I trying to say? Other than parsing And sounding smart because I can say a Greek word as long as I have it phonetically written down on my iPad. What Jesus is saying to this man is, "This, this made you well. But don't sin anymore. And let me tell you something. Him being at that pool was sin. It did not come from faith. And you convincing yourself that if you just build your bank account up enough that you'll be all right, that's sin. And you believing that you can fix your spouse is sin. And you believing that you can fix your marriage on your own is sin. And that you can fix your kids or save your kids or make your kids safe enough is sin. And you believing, fill in the blank. And Jesus says to him, don't do that anymore. You've just seen what I do. Don't go back to this life where you think you can do it your way, or you follow the ways of the world, or you hope in the religious observances of your day. Hope in me. Because in me, we will find what we were made for. Jesus is inviting the man into a whole, healed life. Not a temporary life, but an eternal life. He invites him into dependence on Christ, worshiping the Lord, doing all things that proceed from God. This life in Christ is the life that we were meant to have for eternity. This is the life of Taub. That life is good. That life is pleasing. It is delightful let me end here our youngest who has been cheering me on during the sermon uh, he was born after we moved down here to plant uh, mercy's door so all of our other four kids our other four kids were born up in the chicago area or before we got down here to plant now since we've been down here planting Mercy's Door. We've lived in two homes. Both of them we have renovated like from top to bottom. Like 
tore down to the guts, and then built back up. Jude loves construction. Like, when, when me and my father, because when I say we have done the renovating, I mean my father assisted by Rachel and I. Whenever we get to work, Jude is right there. But there's been this problem that we have found. And that Jude's idea of construction looks a lot like demolition. Right, so Jude gets a hammer and he'll go around and go, I'm going to break it. He gets a saw, and he's like, I'm going to break it. And so recently we've had to say, hey, buddy, listen, the point of renovation and construction is not to break things, but to create things. Yes, there's breaking that occurs before the creating and the healing. But the truth is that this is what we are called into. Listen, maybe I'll I'll say it this way. Jesus is always healing. Always healing. He's always creating. And there are times, just like this man's life, where it feels like he's been in the demo stage for a long time. Where things feel broken. Where things feel flipped up side down but Jesus is always healing for this man and for you and for me this is what he does this week as I was preparing to preach I told Pastor Adam I said you know when you get far enough into a gospel and you get to passages like this it becomes difficult because it feels like I could just flip back and, and grab one of the other sermons that I used where Jesus comes upon someone that's sick and broken and tenderly and kindly and miraculously heals and then they go on their way and the Pharisees get upset with them. And I, I was telling him, I was complaining in some ways. I was like, gosh, come on. Can you do something else, Jesus? And I just felt like God like, lovingly smacked me upside the head. And was like, did you just hear what you said? Jesus is always healing. So if he's always healing, why are we always looking around? Because Jesus, and only Jesus, always Jesus, is always healing. So let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked this man. You want to be healed. Because if you do, he will. And it's that simple and it's that good. Let's pray.